The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So I had an interesting experience recently. Uh, This last two months has been a crazy busy time of travel and speaking for me. And I was in Nashville a couple of weeks ago and I had multiple places to be over the course of three days. And I can't remember exactly what I was talking about, but at each time, I mentioned to the group that my wife, Rochelle, and I had just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. And that's not something that you needed to know or they needed to know, but there was something about it that I found odd, actually even shocking. It's that like, unlike you, when I mentioned that, they cheered for me. (laughs) I mean, like some of you are barely 25, so I get it. And what I found interesting about that is that I was shocked by it. That these people who don't know me, don't know Rochelle at all, were excited about that because I think all of us know some folks who are with somebody, with a partner for a long time, and you could tell that they probably might not have been, should have been together, like there's probably some toxicity or abuse, that the 25 years in and of itself is a marker of something, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's something good. I mean, God knows what my poor wife has had to put up with for 25 years, and including dating, it's been 28 years. We virtually grew up together because we're only like 30. (laughs) And then I realized the reason that it stood out to me is because of another experience that I had just recently had. A friend of mine who pastors a church in the Midwest had gone on Facebook and mentioned that that day was his 27th anniversary. And I missed that post, but I saw the next one when he'd gone back on Facebook and this is what he said. He said, I just posted about my 27th wedding anniversary, which is today. And then I realized, oh wait, What about all those people who, for all kinds of reasons, good, bad, and everything in between, didn't make it to 27 years, or 17 years, or seven years, or even seven months? And if that is you, I wanna say, you're good. You're on a good path. Lots of years married isn't a badge of honor. It's just a thing. It's just a signpost of some of the journey. Ah, I'm fumbling with my words. But what I really wanna say is I see you. And so he posted that, and you've all been on social media, so you know exactly what happened. Like a lot of people responded to that post, and many of them were like, oh, thank you, and they would tell their story, and they would say, well, thank you for being so empathetic and so open and so kind, which I thought, really, I was like, dude, you are a much better person than I am. Because in my life, I've written a thing or two, and so I decided that I would leave my own comment. And so I did, and I congratulated him and his wife, and I subtly suggested that you shouldn't apologize for rejoicing about your marriage. And why is his marriage 
anybody else's business in terms of their story. It's just his marriage. It doesn't say anything about anybody else's marriage or anybody else's experience. Like none of us are naive. We know that there are some really challenging, traumatic, struggling relationships in the world that not everybody's story is the same, but like being able to name your story and being able to rejoice in your own story, to have some celebration around that, like you don't have to apologize for that. And you know, we just live in a funny time because 30 or 40 years ago, Christians and churches did a really bad job of acknowledging trauma and hurt and grief and bereavement. If you needed help with your mental health, like you had to, you had to keep that a secret. And so much good has happened in the last 30 or 40 years in terms of the population in general and churches in particular opening themselves up to other people's story and the pain that is inherent in life. But at the same time, one of the things that we have done is that we have lost the ability to rejoice. Because guess what? Not everything in life is pain and trauma. And because one person has issues that trigger them does not mean that those same issues are present in everybody else around the same things. And we almost fumble over ourselves to not be happy, to not rejoice, to not say like, like you're good for doing a good thing. And just because someone else has a bad experience around a good thing, you should not have a bad experience about a good thing. You should be able to celebrate that thing. And I believe that one of the things that the Apostle Paul teaches us rightly to do is that in this world, because there is so much darkness and hurt and heartache and pain, that we should, it is good and virtuous, we should weep with those who weep. But you know what else Romans 12 says? To rejoice with those who rejoice. And if we're not careful, we fall into this life pattern that's kind of like going to the gym and doing bicep curls on just one arm. And over time, that strengthens a weak arm, but it leaves the other side atrophied. And not only are you imbalanced, you look really weird. And what we want to do in this season is remember that life and a good, full life of following Jesus is a rhythm. And so, yeah, this upcoming week, we enter into the season of Lent, starting with Ash Wednesday. And we'll have services here at noon and six at the Westside campus at six. And we'll enter into that time. And for centuries, what Christians have done through Lent is that they have chosen something, maybe an attitude or an action that has come to dominate or control their lives, something they've become too addicted to, some sort of pleasure. And they've set that aside, naming their reliance, their dependence upon God. Or perhaps in the season of Lent, you pick up a new practice that brings wholeness and virtue into that time. But also through that period, each Sunday, we celebrate the feast the rhythm of feasting 
and fasting, feasting and fasting, because from the time of the Hebrews, God's people have been called into this rhythm. Some of you know that my oldest daughter works for Texas Hillel Foundation on the campus of the University of Texas at Austin. And Texas Hillel is basically the Jewish campus ministry at UT. And so she works there because there are certain things on certain days that they need a Gentile to do. So at Shabbat every Friday night, Shabbat is over, um, you're supposed to leave the candles burning. Fire code won't let you do that, but no one who's Jewish can blow out those candles or turn out the light. So that's part of her job. And so she was telling me last semester that it felt like to her, like every other day, there was some feast or festival at Jewish Hillel when she got called into work. And she says, Dad, like there is a feast or a fast virtually every day. And over Christmas, she showed me this, this website called isitajewishholidaytoday.com. <laughs> and you just go there and refresh the website. There's not much to the website. It just says yes or no. <laughs> it doesn't tell you which holiday it is, which feast, which festival, just that there's one. Because baked into the experience of God, is a rhythm of feasting and fasting. So one of my favorite theologians was a guy named G.K. Chesterton. And Chesterton was a late convert to Christianity. And Chesterton didn't come to Christianity. He didn't convert because Christianity answered the problem of pain. He converted because atheism could not answer the problem of pleasure. And he realized that the worst feeling in the world was to wake up one morning and look at your life and to be really thankful and have no one to thank. But he says this balance, this movement back and forth between feast and fast, that they work together. And this is what he says in his book, Orthodoxy. I felt in my bones first that this world does not explain itself. Second, I came to feel as if magic, and by magic what he means is that the world is enchanted, like we, were, we talked about last year for those of you who were around, that we do live in this enchanted place. I came to feel as if magic must have a meaning, and meaning must have someone to mean it. There was something personal in the world, as in a work of art. Third, I thought this purpose beautiful in its old design, in spite of its defects such as dragons. And what he means by dragons? is that there is evil in the world, that there is present darkness. Fourth, that the proper form of thanks to it is some form of humility and restraint. We should, not, we should thank God for beer and burgundy by not drinking too much of them. And last and strangest, there had come into my mind a vague and vast impression that in some way all good was a remnant to be stored and held sacred out of some primordial ruin. And what Chesterton is after is to draw our attention to the reality of this rhythm. That life 
is not all of one thing. And it doesn't make you a deep person just to be able to name all the darkness. And it doesn't make you a flippant person just because you are always happy. That there is a rhythm. It's embracing that rhythm that you find meaning and purpose, that you move forward. And the Gospel of Matthew lays out several images of this in chapter 9. Matthew starts out with an encounter that Jesus has. He says, once when he ate a meal at the home of his disciples, a whole host of tax collectors and other sinners joined them. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus says, look, who needs a doctor, healthy people or sick people? I am not here to attend to people who are already right with God. I am here to attend to sinners. In the book of the prophet Hosea, we read, it is not sacrifice I want, but mercy. Go and meditate on that for a while. Maybe you'll come to understand it. It's like one of the aspects of Jesus' teaching that I love is that he reminds us that you can be intentional and faithful when you open the scriptures and still get it wrong. Because the Pharisees were. They were intentionally out to misunderstand the scriptures. They just got it wrong. And he says, you know what? Life is not all sacrifice. And that's not to say that there's not sacrifice. That's why we practice Lent. That's why we practice giving. That there's much to do about sacrifice that will mature you and make us all better people. But to understand, you have to understand that not everything is sacrifice. That not everything is just using one arm. Matthew goes on. And then some of the disciples of John came. What's the story with fasting? We fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. Jesus says, when you celebrate as at a wedding, when one's dearest friend is getting married, you do not fast. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then my friends and followers will fast. You wouldn't begin by washing and shrinking a patch you would use to mend a garment. Otherwise, the patch would shrink, pull away from the garment, and make the original tear even worse. You wouldn't pour new wine into old wineskins. If you did, the skins would burst, the wine would run out, and the wineskins would be ruined. No, you would pour new wine into new wineskins, and both the wine and the wineskins would be preserved. And this is the heart of it. Like, have you ever, have you ever been to a wedding? Like, have you been to a wedding? Like, you're probably there because the bride or the groom wants you there. You're a friend, you're a family member, and if you've ever been to a wedding, most weddings, the bride and groom are happy to be there. (laughs) And they are inviting you into that happiness, into that celebration. They're sharing their happiness with you. So when I was in college, I was in this prayer group and there were six of us and we're all the same age, we're all in the same class and we all got married about the same time. Like within 18 months, 24 months of one another and we were all in one another's weddings. So guys, 
If you're in a friend group like that, let me give you a little advice. Just go to the store and buy a tuxedo. Don't rent every time. I just saved you hundreds of dollars. You're welcome. But then once we were all married, like we just went on with our lives. A few years later, we moved to Houston for the first time and I made a new friend he wasn't married yet. And we got very close. And when he was finally getting married, he invited me to be a groomsman at his wedding. And I was like, dude, I am too old to be a groomsman at your wedding. Like my day is over. Because when my friends were getting married, it was like a whole like weekend thing. We would show up early. We had traditions and rituals. It would be three or four nights of us being together. And I, you know what? I was in my 30s by then. Like I didn't have the energy for all of that. Like we had kids. Like you, I'm kind of, I'm kind of insulted that you asked actually. Like I'll show up, like I'll be at the wedding. But I agreed, I agreed to do it. And the wedding was on a Saturday, like five o'clock. But he had a nervous bride and she wanted us there, even though pictures weren't until like four o'clock. She wanted us all there at one o'clock in the afternoon. And I was like, why I gotta do this? I don't wanna do this anymore. Like I was, I'm a professional groomsman. I have done this a lot. I showed up and we sat around and watched college football all afternoon, which I thought this would be more comfortable if I were doing this at home. <laughs> That's a complete wrong attitude. Because this is a time to celebrate regardless of whether I felt like celebrating regardless of my circumstances. Jesus expects that you will know the times, that you will know the rhythms of when to celebrate. And to celebrate not just for ourselves or with ourselves, but for others. One of the great joys of being a pastor is officiating weddings. And the weddings I feel worst about are not when I feel like we didn't cover something really important in premarital counseling, and it's not when I feel like I didn't do my best in writing the wedding homily. The ones that I feel worst about is when the schedule forces me, my own schedule forces me into the fact that I can't stay for the reception. Because this couple has invited me in this time to celebrate. And we just live in a time where more and more of us have become so self-centered and overwhelmingly self-focused and believed that our current emotional experience ought to be the emotional experience of everyone. That if it triggers us, no one should talk about it. If it's a bad experience for us, no one should do it. That if we don't have the best feelings around it, then no one else can do anything or even talk about it or bring it up. Everyone else should just hold on to my feelings. 
a good friend of mine, Hal Runkle, is a best-selling author and therapist, and he wanted to write a book over a decade ago about self-leadership. But he didn't think anybody would buy that book, so he turned it into a parenting book. And it's called Scream-Free Parenting. And much of it is about warehousing your own emotions, like responsibility for your own emotions, which is a great way to parent. But it's also a great way to live. And in Scream-Free Parenting, he talks about this simple idea. Focus, you focusing on you is not selfish. You expecting everybody else to focus on you is selfish. Using this metaphor of a wedding, Jesus says when you're at a wedding, it's about the bride and bridegroom. Know when to rejoice. And Christians, believe it or not, need to recover rejoicing, need to recover celebrating. It is a sign of spiritual maturity to know when to rejoice, even when it feels to you like you don't feel like rejoicing. Because the rhythms stretching back to the Hebrews about when to fast and when to feast aren't based on how you feel about feasting and fasting. They're based in the time. And maybe in the middle of a feast, you need to be fasting. And maybe in the middle of a fast, you need to be feasting. But a life well lived is lived in the center of those rhythms. The church did not invent the liturgical calendar for no reason. It's centuries of knowing and learning and developing thinking through prayerfully how human beings not only function, but how we function best. Matthew goes on. He says, as he was saying these things, a certain official came before Jesus and knelt in front of him. My daughter just died. Would you come and lay your hands on her? Then I know she would live again. Jesus got up and he and his disciples went with the man. But as they were heading to the man's house, a woman who had been hemorrhaging and bleeding for 12 years, 12 years crept up behind Jesus. She evidently believed that if she so much as touches the fringes of his cloak, she will be healed. And so she came up behind him and touched his cloak. Jesus turned around and saw her. Jesus says, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. And indeed, from that moment, the woman was healed. Then Jesus went to the official's house. He saw flute players and mourners. Go away and do your ministering somewhere else. This girl is not dead. She is merely asleep. The crowd who knew with certainty that the girl was dead laughed at him. But they obeyed him and left the house. And once they were gone, Jesus went to the girl. When he took her hand, she opened her eyes and stood up. When the crowds outside learned that the girl was indeed alive, they spread throughout the town and the surrounding country telling everyone what had happened. 
So Matthew gives us three images. Three images that are what they are about. But they're about something else too. They're about keeping time and knowing time and knowing when things happen and why things happen and why things happen when they happen. A good friend of mine told me several years ago, to understand life well, you have to know that being alive is a joyous lament. And what he means by that is that at any given moment in your life, there is something to be joyful over, something to be joyful about. Like even if it is only the fact that you draw breath, breath breathed into your lungs and nostrils by the creator God, that there is always something to be joyful about. And that there is always something to lament that our world is fragile and broken in so many ways, that there is legitimate darkness. And the rhythm of feasting and fasting builds into our system a way to acknowledge both, that they are both present all of the time, and to develop, to become, to grow, to nurture, means becoming the kind of person who knows what to do when. So this Lent season, there's gonna be plenty of opportunity to fast. And if you've never practiced Lent, we do wanna invite you into that rhythm. But each Sunday, take time to rejoice and celebrate, and not just rejoice and celebrate what's happening in your life, but the lives around you. Because it's not about you, it's about time. So a few ways to get started doing that. And none of these are magical, I just came up with these. You could probably come with your own list, It'd be much better than mine. But you could just start by keeping a journal of celebration. Like every day, what is it in your life that is joyful, that brings in celebration, that you want to rejoice over, the lives of your family members, your parents, your children, your coworkers, that you want to celebrate? Because you cannot celebrate well if you do not see well. And one of the great gifts that you can give yourself is to become the kind of person who notices. Who notices the beauty that's already present in your life because life is busy and hard and everybody's got jobs and kids and school and everything else moves so fast. Just to notice, name, and keep it. Then you just pay attention to your own rhythms. The rhythms of the year, the rhythms of your life. One of the groups that Mike talked about before, and all of those groups are going to be great places for you to connect, and people will help you keep time. And one that I'm leading on the west side on Sunday evenings is, we started to call it like Paschal and Party, but it's a time that we will walk through a few things together. 
Bono's new book, Surrender, The Paschal Mystery, which is this rhythm of Jesus's life. And whatever you're fasting from, if it's appropriate to bring and have and do when we're together, you can break the fast together. And I hope you guys fast from stuff that I will enjoy and you bring enough for me. Third is just to walk and to get the sun in your eyes. Not only for the health benefits of being in the sun, but because we do live in a dark time of year. And we need to be reminded that even in the darkness, like there is always light. We'll come back to this at another time in the future. But every great world religion has a physical practice that's associated with it. You know what that is for Judaism and Christianity? Walking. As a mentor told me years ago, that you wanna get out and you wanna walk first thing in the morning because everything looks different in the morning. And four, just reject cynicism. And there's so much cynicism in our world. That's why people who complain and critique are interpreted as as deep and thoughtful. And folks who are just happy, we consider them airheads and flighty. But what if they know something that the rest of us don't know? That the rest of us are cynical. And honestly, the easiest thing in the world, the easiest thing in the world to do is complain. Anyone who has children knows this. It does not make you smart or insightful. And guess what? Because I'm the worst at this. Like, I complain for sport. People get tired of your complaining. And it just invites more cynicism in the world. And the reason you do this is because of what Jesus said. That there is a time to celebrate. And you do that when the bridegroom is with you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.